Short Rounds. Hey, y'all, and welcome to the Unknown Soldiers podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and I am back once again with a Paraguayan War Short Round. So yes, this is a supplement to the bigger Paraguayan War saga, and it will not make much sense outside of that story. I numbered this episode Paraguayan War Part 4.5, so I recommend you listen to Paraguayan War Series 1-4 through 4 before this one. Would you start a great work of literature from the middle, something like Oliver Twist or Blood Meridian or Twilight? Of course not. This short round is also going to be a little longer, a not-so-short round, <laughs> to keep you guys sated between episodes. After all, we got the holidays coming up, I'm going to do my absolute best to get Paraguay Part 5 done, but Thanksgiving is coming, Christmas is after that, it may take a little while. Hope you guys don't try me for treason if this short round runs a little longer than usual. Today's short round focuses on one of the most legendary figures of the Paraguayan War, someone who has been a part of this story from the beginning but has never really been in focus. She is Eliza Lynch, Francisco Solano Lopez's favorite mistress, the mother of his children, and essentially his first lady. But she was more than just a side piece. Eliza became infamous, one of the most well-known and most despised women in the history of Latin America, a controversial and fiercely debated figure even within her own lifetime. Allied propaganda turned her into a she-witch, a succubus who seduced Lopez and destroyed a nation. Paraguayan propaganda turned her into a tragic heroine, a nationalist icon, a boss babe. Eliza has also benefited from an avalanche of fictitious interpretations of her life, including films, novels, plays, an opera, even a ballet about Eliza Lynch. Even historians aren't really sure what to make of her sometimes. To lots of people, Eliza Lynch is the most famous or the most infamous figure in the story of the Paraguayan War, even more famous than her lover, Francisco Solano Lopez. With all these myths and legends and romantic narratives floating around, finding the real woman is hard, but not impossible. Was she a feminist icon, a greedy hooker, a tragic heroine, a glamorous socialite, or a wicked queen? All or none of the above? Let's find out. Let's delve into the many lives of Madame Lynch. As always, this is not just history, but military history, so there's some dark and bloody stuff going on. This podcast is PG-13, the language is clean, the content is not. All my sources are on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com, so if you want to fact check me, feel free to do so. Finally, any errors, misrepresentations, or mistakes are my own. All the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story about a real woman who is far from an unknown soldier. Eliza Lynch was probably born in County Cork, Ireland on November 19, 1833, to Dr. John Lynch and Mrs. Jane Lloyd, and like much of Eliza's story, probably is the best we get. We have a baptismal record pointing us towards that date, but Eliza herself told at least two different stories about her birth. In her court deposition in 1871, I was born in England in 1835. My father was Dr. Lynch, an Irishman. He had some property in County Cork. My mother was a Welsh woman. Contrast this with what Eliza wrote in 1875. I was born in Ireland in the year 1835 of honorable and decent parents belonging to an Irish family who included on my father's side two bishops and more than 70 high officials, and on my mother's side a vice-admiral of the English Navy. My cousins and other relatives hold high positions in Ireland. 
But we have a baptismal record saying she was born in 1833 in Ireland. So yeah, Eliza's own accounts do not tell the truth. And her contemporaries can't be trusted either because they took every bit of ridiculous gossip about her at face value. So we can trust very little of what was written about Eliza Lynch during her lifetime. We have to always look at it with a cynical eye. Her story comes with a lot of probablys, could-haves, and maybes. Sorry, this episode is just like that. Eliza lived multiple lives, the life she remembered, the life others remembered, and the real story. The many lives of Madame Lynch. Eliza's family probably left Ireland during the Great Famine and the cholera epidemics of the late 1840s. Cholera may have killed her father. And the hunger and fear left an impression that shaped how she saw the world, just this the trauma of Ireland during the Great Famine. Eliza would see scenes like that again during the last days of the Paraguayan War. Eliza next appears in the historical record in June 1850, when we have evidence of her marriage to a French army surgeon named Javier Quatrefage. She was 16, he was 34. This was not a happy marriage. Quatrefage took Eliza to his garrison town in Algeria, which sounds extremely miserable. Algeria was a war zone, a counterinsurgency nightmare with lots of disease to boot. Eliza just left Great Famine Ireland, and now she's out of the frying pan into the fire. So Eliza left her husband and ran away to Paris when she was maybe 18 years old. She claims it was ill health. Oh, my health, I must leave my dear husband. Her enemies claim she ran off to become a prostitute. Probably her husband was just a douchebag, and Eliza said, screw this, I'm leaving. Eliza's haters spilled a lot of ink talking about her two years in Paris. Rumor, she was just hanging out, but rumor and gossip have made her into the queen of the Paris hookers. She supposedly slept with hundreds of men, caused men to fight duels and even commit suicide over her, ruined, lo- ruined an English lord and a London banker, blah, blah, blah. Eliza, of course, denied any of this. She was a perfect woman throughout the entire time she was in Paris. Those who have tried to represent me as a woman of evil life in Paris are confounded. There was not enough time for me to have given myself over to the licentious life they have sought to charge me with. So Eliza tried to present her time in Paris as chaste and honest. It wasn't. What did happen was that she shacked up with a Russian nobleman as his live-in mistress. But the Parisian madame was a common literary trope of the time, and it was easy for Eliza's haters to fit her into that stereotype. Was she shacked up with another man while still being married? Yeah, but it wasn't that uncommon in Paris in the 1850s. And Eliza does not appear in any major accounts of the Paris scene, where there were many famous courtesans. She wasn't one of them. There's no evidence to back up the whole Hooker Supreme narrative. She was adulterous, but... It seems monogamous. What Eliza seems like is a woman trying to get by. She had lived a hard life, famines and pandemics, and a cruel husband and an insecure existence, so attaching herself to a man who could protect her while building up her own wealth and security at the same time was just smart. It was a survival instinct. Eliza Lynch, say what you will about her, good or bad, she was always out for number one. Then came 1854. Eliza's Russian boyfriend and her estranged French husband both left for the Crimean War Front, leaving Eliza needing the new protector. Just in time for a rich young Paraguayan dude to come to Paris on a diplomatic mission. 
and Eliza Lynch caught the eye of Francisco Solano Lopez. Even her enemies agree that the 20-year-old Eliza Lynch was stunning, blindingly beautiful, tall, taller than Lopez, in fact, with red-gold hair, blue eyes, high cheekbones and full lips, porcelain skin, and the voluptuous figure. Like, that's all stuff people have said. That's not me making stuff up. She's basically Jessica Rabbit. And she was also relatively well-cultured. She knew art and literature and fashion and especially music. According to one observer, music was how she first attracted the future dictator of Paraguay. Note that this guy who was part of Lopez's entourage just refers to him as the general. The widow asked Eliza to play a lovely piece on the piano to please the gentleman. I approached the general and said to him in Guarani, follow her. He offered her his arm and led her to the piano stool. During the whole time, La Lynch played some part of Il Trovatore, while the general did not lift his gaze from her. That was their first meeting, and from there the romance blossomed. Eliza Lynch was confident and witty, bright and musical, and Lopez was smitten. Both had something that attracted the other. He was rich, intelligent, and powerful, supremely self-confident. She was Europe personified, all its allure and modernity, its beauties and audacities. Soon Eliza joined Lopez's entourage as they traveled across Europe, to Italy, then back to France, then to Spain. His Paraguayan companions were not fond of her, especially his younger brother Benino Lopez, and European society sneered at this pudgy Latino prince cavorting with a married Irish courtesan. But who cared what they thought? Lopez took Eliza back to Paraguay with him in November 1854, when she was already pregnant with their first child. It is kind of weird that he took her back with him. He could have just left her high and dry, not the first rich kid to knock up his girlfriend and then leave her with the bill. But it does seem like he loved her, and it seems like she loved him. Whatever that meant in their context, throughout their relationship, there was genuine affection. No one even tries to deny this. While Lopez went straight home to Paraguay, Eliza stayed behind for a few months in Buenos Aires. There she gave birth to her first child, Juan Francisco Lopez, nicknamed Panchito. She finally rejoined Lopez in Asuncion in December 1855. Asuncion must have seemed alien to Eliza. Compared to the glamour of Paris and the refinement of Buenos Aires, the Paraguayan capital was a rustic backwater full of decaying buildings and muddy street, where barely-dressed women smoked cigars, men spent lazy afternoons in hammocks, and their naked children splashed in puddles right in front of the presidential palace. Imagine Solano Lopez telling his very fashionable mistress, like, Honey, this is your new home. It'll be Paris someday. Just you wait. Lopez quartered Eliza in one of his many houses and visited her often, but in many ways she was very lonely. Asuncion's high society wanted nothing to do with her. According to one Paraguayan socialite, the elites sneered at Francisco's new squeeze. She has sold her body in every brothel in Paris, and now for money she has come to be a despot's concubine. The Paraguayan elites called her La Lynch, La Irlandesa, or La Grandissima Puta, the Great Whore and few hated her more than Lopez's family. Carlos Antonio Lopez, the dictator, told Francisco to keep his hooker out of sight that she could not be seen with him in public. His mother, Doña Juana, declared, 
that woman will never enter my house. Which was rich coming from her. It was widely rumored in Paraguay, may have been true, that Francisco was her son but not her husband's son. Then there were Francisco's siblings. His sisters Innocencia and Rafaela were powerful figures in their own right, raising their husbands, Army Officer Vicente Barrios and Finance Minister Saturnino Bedoya, to the crest of the nation's elite. Weirdly, the thing that always gets brought up in history and fiction about Lopez's sisters is that they were big girls, basically obese. Which, I mean, maybe they were, but they were also corrupt and petty and spiteful, and you think that's more relevant. The younger brothers, Venancio and Benigno, also held power in the state as variously war minister, navy minister, etc. Benigno, the youngest, was always mama's favorite and was always better connected to the Asuncion elite than his oldest brother, Francisco. Either way, Solano Lopez's siblings hated La Irlandesa, and they snubbed her at every turn. They probably thought she was stuck up, the European looking down her nose at the Americanos. And they were probably right. There is an air of snootiness and haughtiness to Eliza's treatment of Paraguay. Eliza never did marry Lopez, because the Catholic Church in Paraguay refused to perform the ritual. Far as they knew, she was still married. She claimed that her marriage to Quatrefage had been annulled, and there's evidence for this. Records show that he remarried in 1857, had a wife and kids and everything. But the Paraguayan church was adamant, and even Lopez's personal appeal to the papacy fell on deaf ears. She could never be Senora Lopez. She would always be Madame Lynch. But Eliza overcame her social exile through the attractions of European culture. She started to throw house parties in the French style, and the European expat community loved these parties. They were comforting and familiar in the very alien world of Paraguay. Diplomats, doctors, scientists, engineers like George Thompson, physicians like William Stewart and George Masterman all attended these parties. Eliza became very close friends with William Stewart, and she trusted many of her foreign business dealings to him. Eliza's parties attracted Paraguayans as well. Most Paraguayan social events took place earlier in the evening, but Eliza's took place fashionably later. So the young Paraguayan elites would go do their time at the formal events, pretending to have fun, and then come to the real party at Eliza's place. Eliza was becoming a countercultural figure, like a sort of a rebellion against the Asuncion standard. European manners and fashions and music and art became popular with her set, dividing them from the old Spanish elites of the capital. Eliza was unpopular with these elites, but very popular with younger generations. She was an iconoclastic challenge. According to Eliza's account, she was introducing modern ideas to the narrow-minded Paraguayan society. According to her enemies, she was a snob, lording it over the primitives. Eliza did always have expensive tastes, and Lopez's wallet was always open for her. She imported all her clothes and champagne and chandeliers and furniture from Paris or London at enormous expense. Her food expenses, including wine and ingredients imported from Europe, came out to an ungodly 500 pesos per month. This is compared to um, Carlos Antonio Lopez through an enormous banquet for the celebration of the country's independence, and that was only 600 pesos for the whole thing. Lots of the accounts of Madame Lynch, even this early, are pretty hostile. Charles Washburn, George Thompson, George Masterman do not like her. A lot of the evil Eliza narrative comes from them, and they're often just making stuff up. 
Which is funny, because they were just fine going to all her parties and hanging out with her before the war. Here's Charles Washburn. The new queen of fashion set an example of extravagance that the more wealthy tried to imitate, and they, in turn, dragged their poorer neighbors along the same road of folly. You can see that Washburn is basically saying here that she started a keeping up with the Joneses trend, that everyone was trying to imitate her, but they, it was expensive for everybody to do this. Rich of you, bro, you were at all the parties. And here's George Masterman describing Eliza. A tall, stout, and handsome woman, although age and the rearing of children had somewhat impaired her beauty, she gave capital dinner parties. She could drink more champagne without being affected by it than anyone I have ever met. Two things here. One, did Masterman just call Eliza mid? Like, maybe Lopez overheard that. Maybe that's why he tortured you. Actually, it was probably just stupid dictator stuff. And number two, you just sound jealous she can drink you under the table. By 1858, La Lynch dominated high society in Paraguay. Despite being constantly pregnant, the very obvious reminder of Lopez's constant attention, and of, you know, their adulterous affair that had been going on for years now. Even folks who didn't like her had to compete with her. She set the style with her food and drink, her makeup and dress, her dances and music, her art and furniture. And in 1862, Francisco Solano Lopez took his father's place at the head of the country. And now they didn't have to hide it anymore. Eliza could appear on his arm at every state function, and everyone had to watch. Flaunting his unwed lover, the Grandissima Puta, in the faces of his family and the elites was another assertion of his power. I break the rules just to show I can. Eliza also stage-managed all of Lopez's big balls and celebrations, becoming his organizer, basically, for the pomp and ceremony of the new modern Paraguay. Worth noting that Eliza was not Lopez's only mistress during this period. There was Juana Pessoa, who had three of his children, and an anonymous third main mistress. Lopez had so many liaisons that lots of Paraguayans still claimed descent from him via a maid or a camp follower. But Eliza was always his favorite, and only she had public prominence as Paraguay's first lady. She was essentially his spouse, without the actual religious blessing for it. Even her most passionate defenders don't deny Eliza's main flaw. She was extremely greedy. Not only was she constantly after new jewelry and dresses and art, you know, going to Lopez, hand out, babe, more, more money please, but by 1865, she probably owned more land than any woman in the world. Several ranches, at least 26 houses in various cities, and at least 12 million acres in eastern Paraguay. A lot of this was state land that Lopez put in her name, but a lot of it came from people the Paraguayan state persecuted, and this would ramp up during the war. Eliza was always hungry to get her name on more land. So when the Paraguayan War started in November 1864, Eliza Lynch was clearly at the top of Paraguayan high society. She was one of the most influential people in the state. And here's the most important question of our story. What was her role in the war? There are versions of this story, of the Paraguayan War, that place responsibility for starting the war on Eliza's shoulders. The narrative is usually something like, that she manipulated Lopez into it. In this narrative, Eliza is motivated by greed and power. She wants a crown. She wants to be the Empress of South America. 
She is the evil woman whispering in his ear, telling him about all the power and glory he could achieve to advance her own agenda. This story even has Eliza telling Lopez to seize the Brazilian steamship Marques de Olinda in November 1864, because there was treasure on board that she wanted. And Eliza allegedly gets Lopez to start the war so she can take this place, she can take power, and using him as a tool. Basically, she is his Lady Macbeth, the devil on his shoulder telling him to do all these terrible things. George Masterman certainly believed that Eliza was pulling the strings behind Lopez. In his words, she treated him, Apparently with the utmost deference and respect, whilst she could really do with him as she pleased. So this version of events, Eliza is the greedy woman who starts the war for her own enrichment, was very popular in Allied propaganda, and it is still repeated uncritically, even in very modern works or YouTube videos or what have you, pop history. It's a classic narrative, the evil, seductive woman misleading her lover into horrifying actions. It's also entirely bullshit. Because Eliza had no real power in this relationship. She had no influence over actual decision-making, and the few times she tried to suggest anything, Lopez shouted her down. She did not sit in government councils or war councils. She had no hand in military or political matters. She didn't try to. Eliza knew her limits and knew how fragile her position was. There's a lot we can never know about Eliza's and Francisco's relationship. No one on earth knows what they said to each other in bed at 2 a.m., but by the Paraguayan War, they had been together for over 10 years. She was his confidant, the only person he could really talk to honestly without having to oppose or posture. Unlike Adolf Hitler, who was always everything he appeared to be, Lopez put on a front, a mask, and he could only take off this mask around Eliza. They knew each other better than anyone else did. Their relationship was genuine. And she was his baby mama. Eliza bore Lopez six children, and he was a very active and attentive father. Say whatever you will about Lopez, and I've said plenty, he was a good dad. He made sure his kids took his last name and he brought them to his palaces and his camp. There's lots of stories about, you know, sweet or, you know, sweet or heartfelt gestures between Lopez and his children. Even his own enemies acknowledge this. His favorite, of course, was his oldest, Juan Francisco, who shared his nickname Panchito. Eliza even babysat his other mistress's kids more than once. They were welcome in the household, too. Strange family. But this was an inherently unequal relationship. Eliza was utterly dependent on Lopez. She was his foreign mistress, with no power base in Paraguay, separate from Lopez himself. Anything she had, he could take away in an instant. He could disown or even take their children away from her. He always had the power to do that. Everything she was, everything she had achieved, her children's lives and custody, depended on Francisco Solano Lopez. Eliza always looked out for number one, including her kids, and their survival depended on Lopez's affection. She would do nothing that would compromise that affection. So for her own self-preservation, Eliza never tried to exert real power in Paraguay. The only power she ever asserted was through Solano Lopez, which is why I think it's unfair to blame her for any decision Lopez made. Eliza was his cheerleader. He was like, I think I should attack Brazil. She was like, yes, babe, amazing idea. You're such a genius. Was she going to argue with him? She was his yes woman, encouraging all his decisions, good and bad. 
because she knew Solano Lopez better than anyone else, contradicting him, disagreeing with him, even expressing doubt in his decisions was one of the most dangerous things you could ever do to Lopez. It would place her and her children in jeopardy to even for an instant seem like she wasn't on board with every single one of his plans. To paraphrase Taylor Swift, she was safest as an ever-lovely jewel whose shine reflected on him. Every jackass decision Lopez made was his own decision. Eliza had nothing to do with him, she had no power, and she couldn't if she wanted to. He was a narcissistic maniac with delusions of grandeur long before Eliza entered the picture. If she always told him what he wanted to hear, so did everyone else. Eliza's haters have cause and effect mixed up. The people who say that, oh, Eliza organized the war, they're mixing up cause and effect. Lopez didn't start the Paraguayan War because Eliza told him it was a good idea. Eliza told him it was a good idea because he wanted to do it and she knew what was good for her. So when Lopez went to war, Eliza was by his side. She even appeared at a balcony and gave a speech to the Paraguayan people when he declared war on Argentina. People of Paraguay, I thank you for the congratulations you come to offer me for my senor, the President of the Republic, in the war that you have just declared on these two large nations who, drunk on greatness, thought Paraguay could not confront them. From this moment, I declare myself a Paraguayan citizen, and with this basket, I will march by your side to battle to nurse you. Madam Lynch and her children were present at Lopez's headquarters throughout the Paraguayan War. They were at the war front, in Asuncion or Humaita or Paso Puku or San Fernando. Eliza was always there. She became the army's good luck charm, a sign of hope. Like every Paraguayan soldier saw her at least once, she was like a celebrity in the camp. When the Paraguayans were raiding across the Piranha River in early 1866, Eliza went down to the landing site to see them off, then to greet them and hand out cigars when they returned. When soldiers were promoted or given awards, Eliza often did the honors, and they were happy to receive them from her. Eliza continued to use her party planning skills to keep spirits up, especially during darker times in the war. In late 1865, as Paraguay awaited the Allied invasion, she organized balls and pageants at Humaita, where she led the dancing. The music included not just European classics, but popular folk tunes like La Palomita. At Eliza's balls, if only for a moment, they could forget the war. No Paraguayan who survived the war ever forgot the tune of La Palomita. Madame Lynch was very popular with the Paraguayan rank and file, including the army's camp followers. She was kind of like their queen bee. She inspired and designed uniforms for a paramilitary women's organization that marched around Asuncion trying to raise morale during the long pause. And she was always one of the people looking out for the camp followers of the Paraguayan army, making sure they were well cared for. Two other prominent army women were her ladies-in-waiting and her babysitters, Isadora Diaz, sister of General Diaz, and Juliana Insfrande Martinez, the wife of Colonel Francisco Martinez, Lopez's staff officer and the final defender of Humaita. These two were her best friends, basically. Eliza also showed herself to be braver than Lopez. She walked the trench lines during artillery bombardments, barely seeming to notice the shrapnel and metal flying around, even as her lover hid in his bunker. When General Diaz was mortally wounded by the Brazilian ironclad, Eliza was the one to drive her carriage down to Kurupaiti and carry him back to the hospital, and she was the one to tend his wounds until he died. 
Whenever they evacuated the position, Lopez fled first, leaving Eliza to pick up the kids and their belongings and hurry after him. He could be very callous towards her sometimes, shouting over her, dismissing her opinions, uh, placing himself above her when it came to food or shelter, and we would call this emotional abuse. Of course, what was she going to do about it? Lopez didn't abuse Eliza physically, at least not yet. It does sound like they had some altercations. There is one story where she confronted them over another woman, a new mistress he was trying to get with, and she allegedly scratched his face. And she got away with it. Because that was harmless feminine violence, not a real threat to his power. They had just been through too much together. And mourned too much together. Like when Eliza's infant son died in the cholera epidemic of 1867. Eliza also profited from the war. She received much of the wealth looted by Paraguayan armies in their invasions of Brazil and Argentina. And continued to buy any land she could get. As Lopez started to execute or throw people in prison, Eliza would often be there right behind him to buy their land at a discount so they could have some cash on hand for their defense. On several, What's strange is that her land buying increased the worse the war looked for Paraguay. Eliza claims she was buying land to raise prices and keep the Paraguayan economy from collapsing. Oh no, I was buying all this land to help the stock market, which is easily one of the most barefaced lies I've ever heard. Her enemies just said that she was mindlessly greedy. But this wasn't mindless greed. It was excessive, but it was understandable. Buying up land, putting away wealth, this was insurance. Eliza was preparing for the worst. Lopez might be captured or overthrown or die or lose the war. And what would happen to her and her children then? For someone who had always been the plaything of men, used and abused and cast aside at their leisure... Eliza knew she needed a backup plan if things went south. She always looked out for number one. In fact, during the war, she was sending sums of money overseas, overseen by Dr. William Stewart, her British friend, who had connections with bankers in London. Eliza would give him a chest every now and then, like, hey, hey, Will, send this to London. Don't tell anybody. She's stocking up money. She's getting a nest egg. She has a bug out fund because she's looking out for number one. Now, Eliza may have actually exerted influence a couple times on the course of the war. And this is very uh, sketchy and murky. We're not exactly sure whether this happened or not. And it might explain some of Lopez's behavior. Because it seems like the only occasions Eliza used her influence on Lopez were those moments when he considered peace. There is some evidence that the Yatiti Cora meeting, where Lopez sat down with Bartolome Mitre and tried to make peace, was Eliza's idea. This might explain Lopez's odd behavior during this time period, like she was pushing him to make peace. And this might explain why she was the first one he spoke to when he returned. Like he bypasses all his officers, goes up to Eliza and says, We did not reach an agreement. The war will continue. And in 1867, she may have been the one who pushed him to consider the idea of a golden bridge, a comfortable exile. She had been sending money out of the country for quite some time, maybe laying the groundwork for them to flee. Who knows? But far from being the one who started the war, Eliza may have been the only one in Lopez's inner circle pushing him to make peace. Because of her utter dependence on him, she could suggest it without being seen as a traitor. And now another big question. 
Was Eliza complicit in Lopez's tyranny? Was she his evil queen? Eliza never really tried to argue against or stand up to Lopez's stupid dictator shenanigans. As his personality grew more tyrannical and more bloodthirsty, Eliza was by his side affirming everything he did. Like, yep, babe, you're right. They're all trying to backstab you. He's definitely a traitor. In this way, she was complicit. She did not try to stop Lopez from executing or persecuting people, especially not during the San Fernando massacres. And we can judge her for that. She made this choice. She put herself in this position. And you can even see it as cowardly. Like, maybe she should have done something. Maybe she should have told him he was going crazy. But she had no power to stop him when he was set on something like this. Lopez was gonna Lopez. And in a climate where any stray comment or any hint of doubt could have someone tagged as a traitor, it was too risky. By saying anything, by even offering a protest, she might have put herself under suspicion. Eliza was probably scared out of her mind in late 1868. Lopez executed his brother Benino, his sister's husbands. He threw his sisters and mother in prison. He tortured and executed her friend Juliana. Eliza was probably terrified that his suspicions would eventually fall on her. He said he loved them. Look what he did to them. He says he loves me. That's not going to stop him if he thinks I'm a traitor. But Eliza was the only person Lopez ever fully trusted because she was so dependent on him that she could gain nothing from betraying him. Her very weakness made her above suspicion. But Eliza wasn't evil. She exerted her influence in cautious, careful ways, trying to sway Lopez only indirectly, never contradicting him to his face that was dangerous. One story comes from Captain Juan Centurion, who fell under Lopez's suspicion in early 1866. He came to meet Eliza with some of his fellow officers, and then Eliza told him when they were about to leave, she said, Stay a moment. I have something to tell you. After the others left, she said, I regret to inform you that His Excellency, the Marshal, is very annoyed, extremely annoyed, with you. I cannot imagine what might have happened. Basically, Eliza was saying in the most discreet way possible, Heads up, kid. Watch your back. You better do something about that. Eliza probably saved Centurion's life, because he immediately sent a long apology to Lopez for whatever it was he had done, affirming his loyalty and all that. And Lopez left Centurion alone, and the young officer would survive the war. Not many people could say that. Eliza also visited allied prisoners of war and even political prisoners and helped them out the way she could, intervened on their behalf once in a while. One Irishman from the Argentine Foreign Legion, captured at Kurupaiti, remembered Eliza sending him a care package and asking about his health. And Brazilian Major da Cunha Matos, captured at 2nd Tuyuti, had a chat with Eliza later in the war when he was a prisoner. She apologized for the situation and said basically, eh, Paraguay's, you know, not so hospitable lately. And then she asked if the Brazilian officers were treated well. When the major said of course they were, she smiled sadly, knowing that he was lying. She began to leave little care packages of books and cigars for the captive Brazilian officers. Major da Cunha Matos remembered Eliza Lynch's generosity. And like the old fable of the lion and the mouse, this small act of mercy would come back to save Eliza Lynch, 
in the final hours of the Paraguayan War. But these small mercies were just that. Small. She couldn't save anybody. She, some people claim that Eliza was the one who ordered executions. She did not. But she didn't stop them and she couldn't stop them. She wasn't going to change Lopez's mind when it was set, and she didn't try because she knew it was useless. Does that make her a coward? Maybe, but Eliza was always out for number one. She must have wondered how she ended up here. An Irish girl just trying to make her way in the world, now she was mistress of a dictator in a nation under siege, slandered worldwide, seen as the arch-villainous and succubus queen leading the nation to destruction, while in Paraguay, she was a symbol of hope, an icon, often seen in later decades and centuries as a national heroine, the symbol of their defiance. But neither of these things is really true. Out of the many lives of Madame Lynch, the real Eliza's just abhuman. She wasn't a boss babe feminist icon hashtag queen. She had no real power, and her influence depended on her boyfriend. She wasn't a prostitute, she witch, succubus, evil sorceress. She had no real power to be. And even if she was selfish, even if she did look out for number one, she wasn't really malicious. She even tried, in a very limited way, to make things a tiny bit better when she could. She was a woman acutely aware of her fragile place in a world ruled by men. If anything, she was a trendsetter, a fashion symbol. To make her Hunger Games reference, the Effie Trinket of Paraguay. Not super good or evil, not super brave or cowardly, not a genius or an idiot. Amazing as her story is, Eliza Lynch was really just an ordinary woman who found herself in an extraordinary situation. And this might be why her story is so gripping to so many people. After all, she lived out a fantasy. A simple country girl who meets a rich, powerful foreign prince who falls in love with her and whisks her away to his faraway kingdom, makes her his queen, gives her everything she ever wanted and dreamed. But the magical kingdom is actually an authoritarian hell state, beset by war and famine and disease, and her charming prince becomes the evil, murderous king who drives his nation into the ground. And Eliza and her kids would not be immune would not be safe when Paraguay tipped over the edge. She would be part of the story to the end, to the final shots fired in the war, some of which pierced the bodies of her children. Eliza Lynch, a simple Irish girl from County Cork, who saw her dream become a nightmare, would have a front row seat for the death of a nation. Thanks a bunch for listening today. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about it. If you don't like it, tell your enemies. Get someone to listen. Check my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com for all today's sources and some additional commentary. I am always available on Facebook or on Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod. You can even email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, even if it's just kind words. And don't forget to check back in a few weeks for the conclusion to the story of Eliza Lynch and the story of the Paraguayan War. See you here sometime after Thanksgiving, probably early December if everything goes well, for the Paraguayan War Part 5, Death of a Nation. Only here on Unknown Soldiers. <laughs>